Hey L2 listeners, we're currently studying the book of Colossians in a series we've titled Following Jesus. You can find audio of this series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. Now here's Russ with this week's message. I'd like to welcome you uh, to L2 this morning. We're, uh, we're actually in the third part of a kind of brief mini-series in the latter part of the book of Colossians. We actually only have two, three sermons counting today before we're done with this series. Um, today what we're going to be looking at is something that I think is remarkably relevant to, to each of you, whether you're a Christian or whether you're just considering Christianity. Um, this, this cuts and lays some things open that I think oftentimes we maybe even take for granted or somewhat dismissive. Um, about a thousand years before Jesus came, around 930 B.C., is when Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4 and verse 30, he said, uh, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And so what he's basically saying there is that there's something about the way you need to pay attention to who you are on the inside. Because like springs of water, that's where the, all their origins come from. And that tells you how we change. It, embedded in that is really what Christianity has a lot to say about. Because we change from that place, or we don't change. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote this statement that is stark. And I think it's somewhat difficult to believe if you just kind of take it at face value without a context, but he said, each day we're becoming a creature of splendid glory or one of unthinkable horror. And without question, each of us in this room and all of you watching online, we've seen that. We've seen people that have done horrific things. Some of you have entrusted your lives to people that you, you can't blame yourself enough because you did that. You can't believe that you actually trusted that person. Whether it was going into a marriage or making a significant investment in business, trusting an institution to give you a certain education when you got done, you, you still can't get a job. We've seen this tipping point in humanity. And on the other side, we, we, we've we marvel at people that we've met. Their goodness, their contribution that they make to other people is just astounding. It inspires us. It makes us really want to be a better human being. And so when we step back and think of this, I think it fits in in a remarkable way in what we've been talking about over the last few sermons where we've attempted to actually get at and answer provide some information or some, at least some context to answer the question, why is it that some Christians grow and others remain stuck, stunted? Why is it that some Christians have this, this vibrance in their life and they, this influence that seems, irrespective of the, the circumstances that they're pushed through, 
it's, it's like they're always the rocks, they're always the pillars, they're always the voices that other people listen to. And then there's other people that seem to just kind of phase in and phase out. They come in and they're, they're all turned on, they're all committed for a while, and then before very long they're gone. Not just gone to another church or moved to another city, I mean gone. They don't even believe it anymore. You see, those are the issues that you need to embrace because those are the things that are going on in our society. The church is losing essentially 1% of the U.S. population per year is turning away from Christianity. That doesn't mean just not going to church anymore. That just means they don't even claim themselves to be Christians any longer. Something is really at a tipping point. And so I, I, I can't help but think that these verses and the instruction that are in these verses provide us like shining a light into a dark storage room where you could never find what was stuffed in that corner without the light. That's what these verses do. Now, this particular section of the book of Colossians contains what I think is almost painfully practical instruction about growing in faith and overcoming those times where you feel like you're not making any progress. Now, let me just kind of put a caveat next to that one. There are times that you are growing when you think you're not growing. There's times where you think you're growing when you're not. But we all know that there's times where we just feel like it has to be better than this. This can't be all there is to it. Because at those junctures is when we often question ourselves, am I in or am I out? And I really believe that there's a nature of kind of a precision within these verses in this section, in chapter 3 particularly, that, that has remarkable instruction. For those, for those of you that are Christians, this instruction here reveals a process that you actually have to follow. This is like a strategy, a strategic plan that a coach would give you to say, okay, if you want to get unstuck, you're going to have to apply yourself to these things. That's how directed it is. If you're not a Christian and you're just, you haven't been convinced of Christianity yet, you're not persuaded, you're interested, you're contemplating some of the issues, I think this is one of those remarkable places where Christianity dispels probably a lot of what you've heard from other Christians because it's remarkably intelligent. It's not just this mystical, metaphysical thing that we believe into that took us out of our lives. Christianity is remarkably intelligent as a worldview, and it pushes us into our lives more intentionally, more intelligently than we ever thought possible. And so if you're a non-Christian, I think you can see that. I think that comes out of these verses. Now, the instruction in this section is, is really interesting because it, it speaks to our culture in the sense that it, it's calling you to a consistency in your life, who you are on the inside and who you are on the outside, coherence, as opposed, you know, so in that sense, it's what everybody talks about when you talk about living, being sincere, or talking about having an authentic life. You see, a person that has an authentic life is a person that what you see is what you get. Who they are on the outside, what you've come to know about who they are is met. Progressively, as you get to know her better, it, it, it actually is consistent. A person who's a hypocrite is a person who looks like something on the outside, and the more you get to know him on the inside, the more the inconsistency. And there's nothing, there's no coherence, there's no agreement there. 
And what these verses are primarily concerned with is bringing those together. None of us have them perfectly together. We can't. But we're trying to avoid, for the, in the face of our culture, that stark contrast that would cause people to say, whatever you believe, I don't want anything to do with that. And so these verses really, really have some pointed instruction to them. And I honestly don't believe that you can make progress in your faith. You can't grow in it. It can't be accomplished or sustained without understanding what these verses say. Now, I want to start by exposing kind of a general process that we see in these verses. Um, in verse 12, it simply says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So the general process of growth that we've seen all the way from the beginning of chapter 3 was fairly simple. It's, it's, it's a process of changing clothes, taking off clothes that don't fit. It, it might be easier for some of, some of you to think of a shoe that doesn't fit. A shoe that formerly it, it, wasn't, it was fine. But it, it no longer fits now. Something, it broke down in the arch and it's, it's making your back hurt. And something about it, you know you can't continue with that. And it's taking that one off and putting one on that's more suitable. It fits. And so we saw in verses 5 to 11 that there are practices that we had, there were attitudes that we had in our mind and the way that we perceived the world, the way that we perceived God, the way that we perceived other people and even the way that we understood ourselves, those things had to be taken out in order to create room for other things. And that's the basic kind of general process. And so in these verses, in verse 12 to 17, you actually see an adding in. There was a putting off section in verse 5 to 11, and then in 12 to 17, this is the stuff you put on. But you see, it has this natural progress. You can't juxtapose those. You can't start putting stuff in your life when all of it's crowded out with all that stuff you used to think prior to becoming a Christian. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that the, the imagery that is basically convey, conveyed in this language, it, it's taking off a garment and putting on one that actually fits. But in many aspects of life, we, we encounter this essentially the same process. Because when, when you go into an academic pursuit, take for instance, uh, some of you that are just starting school, the reason that you're willing to go to a school and pay the, the exorbitant amount of money that they charge you is because you know you're stupid. No, seriously, it, there's a point in which you undertake a subject, an expertise or a skill, where you're able to say that, I don't have that. I don't, I don't have that. Now, I pity you if you go and you just say, I've got that. I just need them to say that I've got it. In other words, I don't need anything they have for me. I can do everything that they need. I just need their piece of paper to show everybody else that I can do it. You're not going to make it because you don't think you're stupid. See, you think you already have everything. You've already heard and experienced everything that they're going to expose to you. So you're just going to be bored out of your mind for the next four years and pay all of this money so that they can tell other people what you thought you knew before you ever started. You see, it doesn't work like that, does it? 
It starts by being humble enough to say, I don't know what this is. But the very acknowledgement of that keys this process that you see in these verses because what it's exposing is a person that is willing to say, I've got other thinking in there that's going to have to be supplanted. Any of you that is, have ever taught anything from a child to read to advanced physics in college, you know that the students that are the most difficult to teach are the ones that think they know it all. That have had all this other teaching, they've had all this other experience. I can tell you from a counseling perspective, the people that are the most difficult to counsel are the ones that have had the most counseling. Hands down. They're almost impossible to counsel because they think they know it all. They spent so much time in it already. And so th this makes sense. This is, even going into a romantic relationship has the same process in it, doesn't it? Where you meet this person and you want to think certain things about her. You want to think certain things about him. And there's this kind of attraction. There's this magnetic pool. But you know down deep inside, you really don't know him. You really do not know her. And there's a sense of ignorance that you have to own. Or you're one of those speed daters that is just trying to find somebody to put in the frame because you assume that you know her. But it's only after spending time together that you unlearn all those assumptions. And they're tied to the reality of another human being that you're going to have to be able to love. But in that discovery is only in that ground can a true relationship come because it's intelligently loving a human being that you do know, not that you assume to know. And so this is just plain life 101. What Paul's getting at is that, is, is that okay, if you really are going to grow and get past this ceiling that you've hit, if you're really going to get through that glass ceiling that, that you've been bouncing off of for the last decade, you're going to have to undo some of these presuppositions that you have. Now, even you could take an atheistic writer like David Foster Wallace, who was a brilliant, a genius, who knew enough about humanity to say, our default system is screwed. It starts and stops with yourself. As a non-Christian, he came to that conclusion. He didn't have this naive presupposition where he went around telling everybody, you just need to discover yourself. You just need to self-actualize. You just need to follow your passions. He said, you are screwed if you trust your default. Because you're going to make everything in this world about you. You always have, you're doing it now, and you always will until you make a definitive choice to think and act differently. That wasn't a Christian writer. That was David Foster Wallace that said that. And so there's a basic function in here. Now, before I move out of this general process, I want to show you in verse 12 three descriptions of the identity of the person that undertakes this process because I think they're truly astounding. The first thing he says, as God's chosen ones. And what that's essentially telling you is that every single one of you that are past the gate and on the journey, you're not there on your own. It's not because you happen to be in the right building at the right time, that you somehow read the right book, you read the right blog, you listened to the right sermon. It's not saying any of that. It's saying God chose you 
He selected you out and made you his. And the tipping point in the reorientation of your life was you actually getting called out of darkness. When it says you're holy, that's the second identification that holiness throughout Scripture, to, to make something holy meant you had to consecrate it. You had to dedicate it to a special use. And so when he says you're chosen by God, he's going to the origin of your journey, and he's saying that pivot was him. It was all him. And the dedication and the orientation of your life, that's him. There's something emerging out of who you are. See, this is our Bible self-mission structure. Coming to believe the Bible, coming to embrace the gospel and put your faith in Jesus causes you to say, I, I, I don't know what I thought I knew. And listening to the voice of God allows you to know who you are, which now establishes your responsibility in the world, your mission, Bible, self, and mission. And so he says you're chosen by God, you're holy, you're consecrated and dedicated to something. You have stuff in this world that is you. That's why nobody sits on these front seats, because I can spit that far. <laughs> you're holy, so you have purpose. And last, it says you're beloved. This is the one that distinguishes Christianity in a remarkable way. Because he, he says the fundamental orientation of God towards us is one, <clears throat> I'm not trying to sing, that was just my <clears throat> voice cord tightening up. Um, it's actually one of unbelievably gentle and kind tenderness. He's not trying to put you like a frog on a board and shoot you with a BB gun. He's not trying to figure out, okay, I know how much she can take and I'm just going to put one extra straw on the camel's back. It's one of love. It's one of... It's a disposition between you and God that's initiated by God and is characterized as love. That's why you have purpose and that's why he chose you. And so the process is pretty simple. Put on this stuff because of who you are. Because of all that you know to be true. That brings us to the specific process and this, this, this is profound. It, the specific process of the growth here it's explained, it's actually completely inverted from the previous section. In verses 5 to 11, it started on the inside and moved to the outside. Here it starts on the outside and moves to the inside. Now I know, I know that some of you that are not Christians, that you're watching online or you're going to listen to this later, maybe even if you're sitting in this room and you're not a Christian, this is where you're, you're going to say, I knew it. This, this is why. I've never been able to trust a Christian. Because it always seems like she was trying to be somebody on the outside that she isn't on the inside. And invariably, that, that, that lack of coherence, I could find it. I could find it. She was too good to be true. And what I found her to be and what I perceived her to be was never the same. And I know that there's a lot of that in the church. But I want you to listen to how he says this 
Because it's not as simple as you think. And it's explaining something so profound about our humanity that I think is truly remarkable. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Now, I do a lot of shout-outs, mostly to Tim Keller, but a lot to C.S. Lewis. So if I had to choose one of them for my writing team, I'd probably be Lewis. If we had a debate team, it'd probably be Keller, but this one's Lewis. Um, Listen to how he explained this. He said, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. See, there's the external before your inside kicks in. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone, someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. There is indeed one exception. If you do him a good turn, not to please God and obey the law of charity, but to show him what a fine forgiving chap you are and to put him in your debt and then sit down and wait for his gratitude, you will probably be disappointed. Now, this is where actually a lot of people over the years, he wrote that in 1952. So in the last more than half a decade, I can't do the math that fast, but I know it's more than 50. So in the last half of a century, he, people have said, well, he's actually telling you to make, fake it until you make it. He's telling you, just be a hypocrite. Be duplistic for a while. But that is not at all what he's saying. And the nuance of it is discovered when you actually begin to contemplate it, when he says that you, you, you're undertaking these things as a stretch in your faith. You're not doing it for self-aggrandizement. You're not doing it to make him think good of you. You're doing it because God says so. And what these verses are talking about is a reaching out beyond you. Not because it feels good, because it makes you feel all wonderful and warm on the inside, but because it's the right thing. It's simply the right thing. Think of the, think of the last time you got caught in a lie. Just even the little one. Whether it was a spouse, whether it was a friend, whether it was a work associate or supervisor, I don't care. Think about that moment in which it all converged into this split-second decision where you decided to do what was right or you didn't. What he's pushing at here are those moments. It's a beacon of light that shines into those moments. And he's saying, do it. Do it. These are the things that you need to give yourself to. These are the things that you need to be willing to bring into your heart and trust by faith that God is going to back it up and backfill it with the heart that you're seeking. Trust him in that. That is profound that that, that, uh, Lewis was able to capture that. And that is not at all fake until until you make it. Now, the process of growing in faith that we see here includes three lists. One's external work that needs to be undertaken by faith, as I just described. And then there's two areas of internal work that one is horizontal towards other people and one is vertical towards God. So the external work is this putting on and this list that we have here 
is basically appealing to your default system, saying, get over yourself. Stop defining the whole world according to you. And this is where going back to what David Foster Wallace said. He said, each one of us, listen to the way most people describe events. Well, I was sitting in traffic and there was a blue car in front of me. I was standing in line and there were 25 people in front of me. I was, I was lucky because I was, I was navigating this difficult passage and there was all these bicyclers that were on the right, on my right. You see, it's always defining the world according to us because that's our default system. And this, this whole list is basically saying you're going to have to recalibrate. You're going to have to get over yourself. And this list starts with compassionate, a compassionate heart. A heart that literally is filled with mercy and genuinely cares about other people. And all of these are transitioning, again, from the, in, from the inside of you to the outside. You're, you're actually trying to show compassion that is coming from the inside. Secondly, kindness which this is a really strange term because it's not exactly what we would think in the English term of kindness. It's an uprightness which is helpful and beneficial to other people. Thirdly, it's depicted with humility. Now again, this is exclusively internal. It's talking about a humility that manifests itself. A lowliness of mind that doesn't always think you're such a stud, that you're so pretty, that you're too, so smart. It's a lowliness of mind to say somewhere in this room, there's someone that has probably forgotten more than I know. There's someone in this room that is her experience and the difficulty that she has navigated in this world makes mine look like a picnic. That's humility. And that's a humility that does, isn't on the inside thinking, oh, I'm a nobody. Oh, I'm just poor, poor, pitiful me. That is you knowing that you're living in an amazingly complex world. And the experiences of other people, the intelligence of other people, the beauty of other people, the influence of other people is always going to be greater than yours. That's the loneliness that changes relationships. So it's compassionate heart, kindness, humility. Now meekness is really interesting because a good definition for meekness is strength under control. It refers to a quality of gentleness that's expressed in friendliness or consideration towards other people. And so you have an intermingling of those terms of humility and meekness. And lastly, patience. This one is going to blow your mind. It, it should, or I'm smarter than you. That was, that was supposed to be a joke. So it's a, this, this idea of patience is that it's a compound term, macrothumas, long burn, as opposed to what we call a short fuse. And it deals with a person's disposition that's a state of quiet, quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstance. One thing, I will allow you to ask my wife just about anything about me except how I travel. I am a jerk when I travel. My patience, this is when I have 
like a short fuse. If you ever mess around with a lot of firecrackers, if you ever try to light one that has a really short fuse, it usually doesn't end well. And he's talking about really having a long burn. That's a gracious patience extended to other people when things are not going well. See, I can, I can see that things aren't going to go well before they really aren't going well. And so when I perceive that and they do not go well, then I don't go well. And this is talking about being different than that. This is being intentionally patient. Saying, in spite of this difficulty, we're in it together, so I'm going to be kind to you instead of be the normal dick that I am. Sorry. (laughs) That just rolled out. Oh, I'm sorry, they're going to have to cut that out of the recording. You guys got a, just this little special feed right there that nobody else is going to get. Um, now, each of these, I hope you can see that each of these externalizations of faith cannot be accomplished when you're in that your default, self-absorbed, self-interested state. They can't, nor can they be considered as merely external. These are externalized because there's something going on on the inside. Now, the second list is an internal work that works horizontally. I'm going to have to push. Um, this is in verse 13 and 14. The first, this first list are attitudinal changes that have to take place deep inside of you to have those external things sustained. Okay? And it carries three, it, shortest of these three lists, it carries three things. The first is tolerance. Now, this is different than the term for patient that we just saw in the previous list. It, it, this is enduring, enduring an offense or inconvenience as exercising self-restraint in bearing with other people. And so this is where you intentionally dial up your tolerance level. So when you continually see that things are happening that are always over your ability to tolerate, this is where you calibrate and say, For whatever reason, it doesn't seem like things are going to go well this semester. And so as a teacher, as a professor, my patience towards these students is going to be recalibrated rather than them calibrating to me. See, that's the person getting over himself. That's the adjustment. For those of you that are pregnant, that are having babies, wait till they do it. They don't even ask permission, and you have to recalibrate. But all of us have that, based on the people in our lives. There's tolerance. Deep inside of us, there's tolerance. There's forgiveness. This is the hard one, right? Forgiveness is not, never, let me just tell you, if you ever come to counsel with me and I ask you what forgiveness is, if you tell me that it's forgiving and forgetting, I'm going to throw you out of my office. That's so stupid. I don't even know where that came from. I'm telling you the forgiveness that happens between you and other human beings that means the most to God is the most painful. The very stuff you'll never, ever be able to forget. That's what forgiveness is. When you've been hurt so bad and you choose not to retaliate and you choose to be able to continue in that relationship as if that is no longer between you, that hurts but it means something to God. And he says, you do that because he forgave you. And if you don't, he won't forgive you. So there's tolerance, there's forgiveness, and lastly, 
This is so good. Love. And the way he even says this is really cool. He says, above all, put on love, which binds, glues it all, it glues everything together in perfect harmony. It all just sings together. It all fits and functions like a motor that now is running. It's a basic commitment and intentional choice to put an interest of another human being above yourself. So whatever they've done, you can forgive them then. Whatever they've done, you can be tolerant with them because you've made an intentional choice to be concerned about them. All of us know that to be love. If you saw that depicted in a movie, it would make you cry. If you could see it extended out between a a mother and her child, it would make you weep because you know we can see it. you, You may not know all that love is not, but when you see it, you know it. It's so true. It's so deep. It's so authentic because it isn't about getting what you want. It's about another human being being better off in this world because you're in her life. See, that's the secret to marriage. It's a testimony before the whole world. That's why Paul said, you know what it's like? It's like the world looking at Jesus and his church. That's what it looks like. And so that's the internal list, the internal work that's horizontal. And he ends this with this internal work that's vertical in verses 15 to 17. Now, this list is oriented towards God and indicates, again, in that inner sanctum, four areas that are going to have to be maintained, oriented the right way. The first is peace. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Literally, this is what I told you earlier what this meant. Let the peace of Christ be your empire. Umpire, I'm sorry. Let, let him be the one that calls you in or out. Let his peace do that. Let the peace of the ruler of the world tell you whether the play counts or whether you go to the bench. Then you're listening to the right voice. Secondly, gratitude. This term simply meant to be mindful of benefits. And I'm telling you as a culture, I can tell you as a coach for the last several years, I, I coach a lot of coaches, so, and they coach other people, so I, I oversee a lot of different stuff. I can tell you one of the number one problems that we have in the United States is gratitude. It's amazing. When I go to Kenya, you have people that make, you know, sandals out of old tires. They live in huts and they take milk cartons to put down so the scorpions can't sting them through the dirt at night. And they're happy and grateful for the smallest little things. And in the United States, we live with opulence, with cell phones. I used to be in computer manufacturing in the early 1980s. We used to sell a 20 meg hard drive for $600. That's insane. I can tell you guys don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It's still insane, even though you don't know, even though you didn't get that. Oh, you you got it. Uh, You got it. Oh, okay. Um, I totally forgot where I was. Um, Gratitude, gratitude. We do not count our blessings well. 
in two months we're going to have this special thing where we're going to have a day where we're supposed to be thankful and we're going to eat ourselves till we're sick we're going to have to take a whole bunch of heart burn medicine because we're going to do all of that stuff and that's our thankful day that's not gratitude that's not what it's talking about here this is talking about it between you and god where you are continually given to an appraisal of the benefits that you have in your life you all are God's creatures. He created you exactly the way he intended. And the more you discover that, the more you'll understand how intelligent he was. But that's not the way we work, is it? We look at a magazine and say, man, my legs are fat. Man, I wish I had hair. Wow. Uh, the other day I was driving, yesterday I was driving in, this guy was going in, he was an older guy, and he had, he had this amazing gray hair. And I'm thinking, wow, that was nice. <laughs> See, I knew you guys would get one. Sooner or later you were going to get one. Now, gratitude needs to be something that is between you and God. Regularly. Just like peace. The third one is truth. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. That's not what he says. Let it dwell in you richly. This is the difference between a sponge that is a little bit wet and a sponge that is dripping because it can't hold it all. It's overflowing. That's knowing truth. One of the simplest litmus tests that I use with you all the time, if you are not reading your Bible, if you are not given to some sort of an extension of how you understand your Christian faith, do not be surprised that you're struggling. If you are not subscribing and listening to voices from Christian communities, if you're not cultivating and developing Christian friendships in your life, don't come to me. You've got it coming. You're expecting something for free and easy. And it's not like that. You're going to have to allow the truth that came out of Jesus and the pattern of his life to saturate you or you're going to be stuck. If you're not stuck, it's just a matter of how long. The last thing, this is my favorite one. With all these lists, this is it. It's purpose. And I think that this actually extends the rest of the letter. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is, an, this is an internal sense of purpose that says, this is for my God. We have, we started these, this surge. Those of you that haven't taken surge, you really missed it. We have the best surge group. There's some of your surge tables out there that think you're good. Ours is better. The other night we were talking about things that we just do that are blessings to other people, kindnesses, and I couldn't share one from, from me. I, I could have made up several of them, but it, this one actually came from my daughter. We were just in Virginia. She's, she's, uh, uh, she's finishing her doctorate at UVA, but on, on the way to the airport, she told me that she had this, they had this buddy thing at Chipotle or something that, that she went with two other associates from the hospital where she works and she was standing in line and they did 
the buddy thing. You buy one, you get one free. And so she said, I just went up and I told, I told the, the guy at the counter, um, I, I, I want to buy his lunch. Sorry. I shouldn't have told this story. I knew it. I knew it. All right, can't qu I can't quit now, so bear with me. So she's... All right, come on, I can do this. So what she said is, I, I, I want to buy his lunch. And so she went over with her two friends, and they sat down, and they started eating. And she said, she just, it, was, it was an older man. And he, he just stood at the counter, confused. And finally, the, the guy in the counter came around and put his hand on her and pointed to my daughter Emily and said, that woman bought your lunch. I guess he might not have been able to hear very well, but... He came up to her with tears in her eyes, in his eyes. And he says, I've lived my entire life and no one's ever done anything like that. It, it, I don't know whether the burrito, six bucks, seven bucks. He said, nobody's ever done that for me. You guys, this is how simple it is. You being able to say, God, this is about you. Whatever I do, however I talk, the things that I don't do, I, 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 I just want to offer them up to you. And it changes us. That's profound. This isn't 12 steps, help, you know, assistance that comes from self-esteem. This is saying, I have to displace some of my thinking. I have to get over me. Or I'm never going to be able to love my children. I have to get over myself. Or God have mercy on all the neighbors I live around. I have to reach out to things that aren't yet in my heart. And I have to be nice to you when I don't like you. Trusting that he's going to fill it back, backfill it in, so one day I can reach it without standing on my tippy toes anymore. That's faith. That's character. That's change. And you'll never have it if you try to shortcut it. Any book that promises, anything that song that you, you listen to, that promises that your life can be that meaningful, is lying to you. We started. We started by simply considering that, okay, this can bring coherence between who you are on the inside and who you are on the outside. It's not about a Christian faith that's going to push them apart and make you some spectacular hypocrite. It's a faith of understanding that's going to bring you into solidarity with you. It's going to make you a human being for real. And so what it's going to do is push you in, not out. I think in the end of the day that you, we have to admit that we have to ask the question, why would someone want to do this? Why should I take what you're saying to be any different than the stuff I've heard in the past? It just seems 
religious, it just seems spiritual. I think to answer that, you have to actually step a bit back and look at Christianity from a broader lens because there it allows you to answer one of the most profound questions that you've ever asked yourself. Why do you want the things you want? See, from the basic time we were very young, we've always wanted things, haven't we? We've always wanted that model or that doll or that whatever, you fill in the blank. We always had our hearts go out to things. We, we looked in the world and we discerned it. We, we experienced it. Maybe it was just going to pick up clothes for school. And our mom asked us, do you like this shirt or that one? And there was something work inside of us that said, that shirt, I like that shirt. I kind of like that shirt too, but I like that shirt more. Right? And we've done that our whole entire lives. You met some people and you were kind of pushed away from some people and gravitated towards other people. What was going on that whole time? See, Christianity is actually saying because you were created in the image of God, you knew your life could and must amount to something. It was unacceptable to you to think that you could live your whole entire life and come to the end and know you wasted it. That still should scald you, whether you're a Christian or not. So, what, where did that come from? You see, Christianity says it came from the fact that you were created in the image of God. It came from you yearning to be something spectacular. It came from you wanting a peace that doesn't just come from the absence of strife in your life, but it's a different kind of peace that comes from knowing you've done well. Knowing that your life really has benefited the lives of others. That is a different kind of peace than a person that just has no strife. And see what the gospel tells you? You can name it under the sun and you'll never have it. That's how simple the gospel is. Whatever you think of, whatever you wanted, whatever shirt, whatever cell phone, whatever computer, whatever shoes, whatever car, whatever university, whatever marriage, whatever child, choose it under the sun, and it's going to break your heart. Not because it's a bad thing, but because you believe too much in it. You believe it can do more for you than it can. And the basic message, the story of the scripture is simply knock yourself out because you're going to reap what you sow. Or, come to me. Those of you that are so burdened, and I'll make it easy for you. I'll show you how to walk this walk. And that's what's in the organic composition of these verses, is a profound explanation of our humanity that I think deserves your consideration. Because it shows us until we change on the inside, we'll never bring the life that we want into the world without being a hypocrite. But as soon as we change on the inside, we can actually become the people that we always, always wanted. Pretty special. All right, let me take a couple questions and I'll be done. Are you saying those who walk away are still Christians? Where do these questions come from? 
If you ask that question, come and see me later. Um, I don't know. That's not for me to choose. Um, I, I believe if you would have known King David, when David looked over his roof and Bathsheba was bathing naked, and he said, go get her. And for the next year, for that process, and she, she wrote, crap, David, I'm pregnant. He said, send Uriah. And then he said, I'm going to get him drunk and he'll go sleep, and then it, we can say the pregnancy's his. And Uriah was so honorable that he wouldn't do it. And he tries a couple of times, and finally he writes the death warrant for Uriah, telling Joab, he said, put him next to the wall and pull back so he gets killed. Why? Because he didn't want to get caught with his pants down, is what just went through my mind. Um, he did not want to get caught being responsible for that pregnant, right? And so what he actually did is have him killed. And they took Bathsheba as his wife. And for the next year, he didn't admit it. And it wasn't until Nathan came and told him the story. And David said, that man deserves to die. And he said, you're that guy. And David went, oh, crap. You're right. For that year, you would have had to say, I cannot believe that this human being knows the God that I know. But he did. He did. For those of you that have friends that are straying, don't quit. You have no ability to say, are you still a Christian or not? You need to continue to do all that you can to see them come home. It's not up to us to simply, are you in or are you out? Now, as a pastor and leaders in a church, we have an obligation that you don't have in that we need to protect you. We need to be able to say that we're not going to allow people to come in here and pass themselves off when they're charlatans. We're not, that means a bad guy. We're not going to do that. We're going to protect you. But as for you, stop trying to decide who's in and who's out. Do all that you can to see that they're in. Next question. How do you suggest we repent if we have not been so nice to our neighbors or loved ones? That, that, second, that last list is a pretty good place to start. What, I'll, I'll, I don't want to go over what Paul said. I just want to stop right here. But I'll tell you what helps me the most. When I realize that I am becoming... I'm always like two inches away from the jerk line in my life anyway. And so I go over the line sometimes too, depending on who you ask, many more times. What keeps me from the line is my gratitude. When I am intentional about being grateful to God, He makes me more tolerant with other people. But when my gratitude goes away, my tolerance towards other people, usually like that bird, flies away too. And they're tied together. And so when we're intentional in our love and our gratitude towards God, and we actually allow His voice to speak in our lives, it makes us much more patient with other people. Last question. Can you explain the balance between God's love and God's discipline? Um, that, that, that's a very good question. Um, Sometimes God's love for you requires you to go to the woodshed. 
That's Hebrews 12. In fact, if you don't go to the woodshed every, every time, occasionally, or every once in a while, it's an indication that you're not the child of God. He simply says, if, if we are without disciplines, we're illegitimate. Because God is faithful to discipline every son or daughter that he receives. And so God's love doesn't always look like this emotional catharsis that we have made it to be here in the United States. It's much richer and deeper than that. God's love is a love that effectually moves you to him. His love is one that is in your best interest, even though it confuses you at times. And he requires you the honor of going forward by just trusting him by faith. It requires you to honor him. So it, it's a very humiliating thing his love is. It isn't this euphoric emotional feeling all the time. It's like, all right, I'll deny myself. I'll take up my cross and I'll follow Jesus. And if I have that inside of me, it's an evidence of God's love. Now God's discipline is painful. If you've ever been under it, it's intended to make you not want to be there anymore and to repent and change. And so no matter where you're at, if you're in that season in which you can sense his goodness and his purpose and direction, or if you're under his discipline, look to him, trust him, listen to him, and see if it doesn't work well for you. The Old Testament story is remarkable to me because Moses was so black and white when he came to this. He said, okay, do that and die. Do that and be blessed and prosper. Listen to him and see that he's good. Good questions. All right. Uh, I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up and we're going to finish by taking communion. When you all sing, it makes me weep down here because we've stood in this room many times over the last... We've been in this building now for 20 years and I've stood in this room a lot and when I sing, the only person I can hear is me, which is not very good. But when I hear you sing, this room has to make God smile. When this room is filled with your voices, I, I promise you, it's heard in heaven. So sing like it. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that these would be moments that would be intensely transitionary. It would be like a tipping point, a watershed within our thinking that would cause us to say, man, I want my life to mean something. I want to know that I didn't live my life in vain, that I didn't waste it. I can't help but think of saving Private Ryan and that old man looking at the gravestone of the captain that saved his life. And he was so distraught at the thought of the last words that that captain said before he died earn it. And Father, that doesn't apply directly to Christianity. We, we can never earn it. But my point is that he got it. And he turned frantically and he shook his wife and he said, tell me I've lived a good life. Father, help us to grasp what it is you've offered us. Help us to want desperately 
to know that we're good men and good women. Help us to long more for, than anything else in the world to hear you say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Help us to do business with who we are on the inside right now so that that would be true tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and every other day. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 